Ever since the first tick-tock of time You brought order to a world undefined Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Welcome to the Genesis West Podcast. Our teaching teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion, to which which our community community responds with curiosity, courage, and a desire to to expand expand in faith, faith, hope, and love. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary, and we follow the church calendar, because because they they anchor us in something something which can hold us, no matter what life throws our way. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us. Everywhere. Cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere. We exist to join God's work of cultivating new beginnings in all of us everywhere. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. We hope you enjoy this week's teaching. Good morning, Genesis. Our next reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, We know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact, there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It's not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fail. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mary. Hey, party people. Okay, so number one, food cannot bring us close to God. What? Weak believers? What? What are we talking about? Food sacrificed to idols? What? 
<laughs> what are we doing? Where are we? When are we? Ugh. Well, it's good to see you all. Uh, and welcome to the fourth Sunday after the Epiphany, the season in which our eyes are enlightened to see who we are and who God is and who we are becoming. So today's scripture portion deals with theological disagreements among followers of Jesus. So we're going to look at what the Bible says about what a church community ought to do when its members don't agree. And so I want to make three observations, though, if, if you'll hear me out, before we even get into the text. Number one, most of the writers of scripture assume people will disagree on important matters. Okay, that's number one. Number two, most readers of scripture assume that the Bible supports what they believe. <laughs> Can I get an amen on that one? Most readers of scripture assume the Bible agrees with them 100% on what they believe. <laughs> Assumption number three, being right is not a biblical criteria for following Jesus. I, I should probably stop preaching right there, perhaps, but I'm not gonna. Uh, Nate, when I lived in China, restaurants would actually sacrifice the first portion of their day's food to the restaurant's idol. It was very interesting. Yes, exactly. The ancient East and the customs that we see still. So today we find ourselves in Corinth. Corinth was a bustling port city filled with many different religious groups and many different temple cults, all of whom would sacrifice uh, food to their idol of choice. It's probably AD 55 uh, or CE 55, about five years since Paul, the Apostle Paul established a house church here in Corinth and about 20 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. So as our story picks up, we find the followers of Jesus in Corinth locked in a debate around this question. It is, is it okay to eat foods that are sacrificed to idols? And there, now, just so you know, because you might be wondering, like, apart from going to maybe a Chinese restaurant in the first century, when else might you actually uh, come into contact with food that may or may not have been sacrificed to idols. Number one, while dining at the home of someone who was not a follower of Jesus, that's when you might eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. Number two, while buying food at the market, how do you know whether it's been sacrificed or not? And number three, while worshiping at the temple of an idol, and you may say, well, when would I ever do that? Because I'm a follower of Christ. But those are the three scenarios. And some people within the church said that it should be forbidden because it would defile them. It seems really clear. Other people in the church say that since they are in Christ, they are free to eat of meat or anything. And so they're locked in this debate. And the house church that gathered in Corinth, one day we can imagine them. And so I want to invite you to imagine what a house church might look like. You got grandma over there knitting. You got Uncle Earl over there who's uh, a little awkward and no one really wants to sit by. You got a few babies on people's hips. It's kind of noisy. And then the elder, the one with the bushy eyebrows, that elder stands up and starts to read a letter that has been written by the Apostle Paul, and it's been circulating. 
<laughs> Uncle Earl, what a character. So this letter has been circulating. This letter is long. It's addressing lots of things that your community is going through since Paul can't be there in person. And when the elder finally reads the, the words, now concerning food sacrifice to idols, a hush falls over the crowd. Because what? Because everyone wants to know, like, what does the leader say? And will the leader's voice finally settle this matter so we can just move on with our lives? Because isn't it exhausting to have theological debates day after day after day? So this is what he reads right from the Apostle Paul. We know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact, there are many gods and many lords. Wait a minute. I thought we just heard that there was only one God. Now there are, in fact, many gods and many lords. Paul just needed an editor. I mean, can we just get an amen on that one? Run on sentences, back and forth. Jeez. Yet for, this, for us, there is one God, the Father, for whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now go back to the room. Look at Uncle Earl. He's confused. Look at the baby holding, look at the lady with the dark hair holding the baby. <laughs> She's confused. Look at the dude that thinks he knows everything. Even he is confused because that answer was confusing, right? And so the elder, the one with the bushy eyebrows, uh, clears his voice and realizes that a summary must be given. Luckily, he understands it somehow. And he says this, listen, you guys, because there is, and listen, you guys, is right there in the Greek, because there is only one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, all so-called idols are irrelevant. This is what Paul's saying. All food has come from this one God. Therefore, we're free to eat all food since we exist through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? The bushy eyebrows has clarified the issue. Now imagine you're among those people that have been arguing that these ancient restrictions actually limit us. And you want to go to someone's house and freely eat their food without offending them by saying like, hey, I'm not gonna eat your food. I mean, how offensive would that be in a culture that's marked by so much hospitality? So imagine you're among the people that agree that this restriction should no longer be a part of your community's culture and that we should no longer worry about eating food that's been sacrificed to idols because, hey, the Apostle Paul said it, there's only one God, and in fact, all these idols are fake. Here's the first all-play question, okay? If you agree with this statement, how do you feel right now hearing Paul just agree with you? How do you feel? If you agree that idols, that food sacrificed to idols should no longer be a deal, how do you feel having just heard Paul's statement read out loud in the community by the bushy eyebrowed elder. You feel vindicated. Andrew, thank you. Uh, Bob, I think that's Bob. Bob, are you still admin? Wow, we, we haven't stripped you of your, of your, of your, of your title yet. <laughs> that's great. I love it. I hope you will never change. Uh, may the odds be ever in your favor. Okay, hungry. Uh, Dan, puffed up, proud, 100%. <laughs> Elizabeth, I mean, I don't want to say I told you so, but yes, that's exactly how you would feel, right? Um, and But then 
let's think about poor old Uncle Earl over there, right? And you can tell Uncle Earl is not happy because he's, he's been vocal about the fact that it's a big deal uh, to change our minds on this one. And he's been very sincere in his arguments that we should not eat food, sacrifice the idols, because it will defile us, okay? And let's assume maybe you're not Uncle Earl, and maybe you haven't made too many vocal comments about it, but let's say you tend to agree with Uncle Earl, and you tend to think, I don't think we should change our minds on this one. This feels like a big deal. We live in a culture that's rampant with all kinds of temple cults, and there's all kinds of idols, and we want to be pure in our following of Jesus. And so you think, I don't like this. We, I, I still don't agree. Now, again, you haven't made a big stink about it, but inside, how do you feel? Let's let that be an all, all play question. If you don't agree with what Paul just said and what bushy eyebrowed elders just read out, how do you feel right now? Use the chat to answer. How do you feel not seen, not heard, Danny? Uh, silence, Nate. Yes. Left out, Bob. Yes. All fear and anger, Nico. Yes, yes, yes. Dave Schlank, well, time to start a new church, I guess. And thus, the exponential church planting movement has begun. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, Rebecca, because you haven't spoken up yet, you feel hidden. Do you speak up now? Yes, exactly. Ann Abbey from Washington. It, I don't know if they have disagreements out there in Washington, uh, Ann, but they certainly do here in Minnesota. Is this wrong? If this is wrong, then what am I to believe, right? Exactly. You feel confused. You feel like something that you've maybe staked some of your energy and your even identity on is now changing. Uh, what else is there? Is, is everything up for grabs, right? Nate, you feel destabilized. You feel threatened. I think all of these things are true. All of these things are true. And let's say that you feel, if you tend to, if you disagree with what Paul wrote, let's say in this little community, you can tell, you can tell just by looking around that you're in the minority, right? Okay, Pam, am I in the wrong place? Exactly. That's exactly how you would feel. You would look around and like, okay, I it feels like three-fourths or more people are now cheering and, and believe, and now they, they got this mandate from Paul, and now they're just going to run over what I think and run over what I believe. And maybe you even think like, well, you know, I don't think I can speak up anymore. Maybe, maybe I am in the wrong place. Whew. So what do we do? What's to be done? Uh, in this little city of Corinth, in this little house church, um, should those who still don't believe eating food sacrifice to idols, should they just get on board with leadership? Is that what should happen? Should they just pretend the debate is over, even though it clearly isn't? Should they keep the debate going and risk alienation and people kind of going like rolling their eyes and saying like, can we just move on? This is a big deal. It's a big deal for Corinth, and I think it's a big deal for us, you guys. 
So go back to the room. There's Uncle Earl. He's uh, <laughs> sitting kind of like Bernie with the, <laughs> with the mitts. Promised I'd get at least one more week out of that. And then a, the dark-haired woman with the baby on her hip, you know, the one that we just talked about, she asked a question. And, and she goes, um, uh, Elder with the bushy eyebrows, would you mind reading the beginning again when it started with now concerning food sacrifice idols, that bit? Because I think you said something, but I think I missed it. So the community goes quiet again as the elder reads. He says this, now concerning food sacrifice to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something <laughs> does not yet have the necessary knowledge. Sounds like something Yoda would say, doesn't it? Oh, yes. That was terrible. Uh, but anyone who loves God is known by him. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. I didn't know Paul could tweet, right? But that should exist on Twitter. Thanks, Nate. It was actually a good Yoda. Uh, goodbye, Earl. Dixie Chicks number 13 on the Hot Country Singles Church in 2000. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. There's a reason why we put you as admin. It's for, it's for stats just like that, Bob. Goodbye, Earl. Uh, so here's an all-play question, okay? Get ready. Get those fingers ready. You, use the chat. What do you suppose Paul means by the statement, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge. Use the chat to answer. What do you think Paul means by channeling Yoda and saying, anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge? <laughs> this is not the thing. These are not the things that we tend to quote when we quote the Bible, right? <laughs> Uh, knowing all is an ego mountain. Thank you, Bob. Knowing all is an ego mountain. Nate, being known is better than knowing. Ooh, I like that. Being known is better than knowing. I think that possibly is what he's saying. Becky, knowing something is different than experiencing something. Ooh, snap. By the way, you guys, Becky Patton is preaching next week. So let's get our snaps on for that. Come on, baby. Uh, Rajan and Janice at the beach in South Carolina. Sometimes when you think you know, you do not listen. Ooh, snap. Now just say that like Yoda would say it, Rajan, and then it would be even, even better. Uh, Allie, the issue isn't really about being right. Whew. Will, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. I love that phrase. You don't know what you don't know. But the question is, do you know it? <laughs> do you know what you don't know? Hmm. Uh, Elizabeth, really knowing is being able to see all perspectives. Now we're getting there, baby. Not that we haven't been. Nico, uh, oh, actually from Regan, head knowledge versus heart knowledge. Yes, thank you, Regan. Uh, Nate, playing off Becky, being able to mentally assent or articulate something doesn't mean you believe it. 
Right. There's a difference between parroting something and really truly believing it. Danny Cook, wisdom equals understanding that you don't know everything. And then Bob, be giving an amen to Regan. So the word knowledge uh, in the Greek is gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, or kind of like neoki. <laughs> Not at all like neoki, but that's how it's spelled. Neosis, and it means the deeper, more perfect and enlarged knowledge of Christianity or something else, uh, such as belongs to the more advanced. So when we're talking about those who know, we're talking about this kind of deeper, more perfect, enlarged knowledge, such as belongs to the more advanced. What does that sound like? Let's let, the, let's let that be an all play reaction. What does that sound like? What am I describing? The deeper, more perfect and enlarged knowledge such as belongs to the more advanced. How do you react to that when you hear that? Use the chat. The deeper, more perfect knowledge that belongs to the more advanced. Level 100 guru. <laughs> yes. Danny Cook sounds condescending. Dave Schlenk, galaxy brain, yes. Uh, Allie, that's classist. Woo! Will is cringing when he hears it. Yeah, it's kind of like you know, like when someone claims to be woke, you know? You're kind of like, number one, hmm. Number two, hmm. Number three, just the eyebrow raise, right? So before Paul gets to the answer of whether or not food should be sacrificed to idols, he's going to go to the even bigger issue that he wants to address. And that is this, there's a human tendency to be condescending towards people who believe in things you used to believe and to be suspicious, don't be suspicious, of people whose beliefs go beyond what you're comfortable with. There's a human tendency to be condescending toward the people that, you, that still believe that which you used to believe and uh, suspicious of people whose beliefs go beyond what you're comfortable with. Have you ever been annoyed by Enneagram conversations? <laughs> See, now we're getting deep. Or let's just get real personal to Genesis. Have you ever felt condescended to if you held more conservative beliefs than most of Genesis does? We're a pretty progressive church for the most part, but we're not completely uh, all the same. We really aren't. Have you ever, ever felt condescended to for believing something still that someone else no longer believes in? Or have you ever felt suspicious of someone who believes something that feels just a little too out there, like, ooh, a little too woo-woo? Um, Bob says, please forgive me if I've ever done this. I would echo that. Please forgive me if I've ever done that. Um, is it possible to become more skillful at this? Back to Mary. Um, yeah, ooh, I think that's the question, right? How do we learn to listen better? Um, there's a posture that we can have when we come into contact with someone who disagrees with us on any personal or theological matter. And I think this is how we can become a little bit more skillful at this. Notice 
your defensiveness rising. Notice your reactions. Notice what you want to say. Notice that you want to be right. Notice all those things. And then ask the following questions. Number one, what don't I know here? Number two, what can't I see here? And number three, what do I need to see more and know more? What don't I know? What can't I see? And what do I need so I can see better and know more? There's a story in John chapter nine. It's a really beautiful story. It's all about this blind guy that's born blind in this city, the small city, everyone knows him. And then he, Jesus heals him and he become, and he can see. And then this big debate happens. How is it that you could see? And some people get to the point where they're so, they so don't want to believe that he could have been healed by Jesus, that he, they don't even believe it's maybe the same person. There's other people that, that simply want to get into a theological debate about is Jesus really good? Cause he healed on the Sabbath. And at the whole time, Jesus is just out. He's just out of the context for like 42 verses. He could clear it all up by just showing up. He could say, hey, everybody, I did it, but he doesn't. Instead, he stays outside of the community. Eventually, this guy gets kicked out of the community where he finds Jesus. Now, that is a theological principle worth sometimes paying attention to. Sometimes you need to get kicked out of a theological community in order to find Jesus. Not always but sometimes. And then Jesus says this, um, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the religious leaders near him heard this and said to him, surely we're not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Is it a sin to have a conviction? Is it a sin to have a conviction? I don't think it is. Um, we use the term third way around here from time to time. Have you ever heard that? We kind of throw that term around third way. It's like our way of saying, I want an alternative to insisting everything has to fit into the dualistic categories of either or, black or white, right or wrong. And in general, I like this term. In general, I think it's a good, it's good movement. It creates conversation. But I also wonder if the term third way sometimes implies that nobody's allowed to have a firm conviction. Do you ever, do you ever feel that way sometimes? I mean, third way is, is beautiful in terms of like, hey, let's not get locked into there has to be an either or because really sometimes there aren't either or categories for things. But in other, in other instances, I wonder if, if we feel like it's not uh, okay to hold a conviction. And so I want to say something. I want to describe a term that's like third way and actually comes from our evangelical covenant church heritage. And it's a phrase called freedom in Christ. Okay, freedom in Christ. And I'm reading this right out of the Covenants playbook right here. Quote, with a modesty born out of confidence in God, we offer one another theological and personal freedom where the biblical and historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations on the will and purposes of God. So freedom in Christ is something we offer to those who disagree with us 
saying like, hey, I may be wrong. Um, and so I'm, we're not going to allow this disagreement to ruin our fellowship. We can exist. Um, and because this matter that we're arguing on over is important. It's worthy of conversation. But we believe that the biblical and historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations. So I'm going to offer you freedom. Now, back to our vote back in May when we said we allow pastors to perform same-sex weddings according to their conscience, and we allow Genesis to hire qualified LGBTQIA plus individuals. The reason why I think it was important that we had that vote is because prior to that vote, um, pastors were not allowed to perform same-sex weddings according to their conscience. Now you'll notice they're not mandated to do so. They're allowed to do so according to their conscience. They're allowed not to do so according to their conscience. Prior to that vote, that was not possible. Prior to that vote, we could not hire qualified LGBTQIA individuals to be on staff. Once that vote happened, it allowed us actually to expand and offer one another freedom. Now, I want you to hear this really clearly though. That vote by our members was not a mandate that every person at Genesis has to agree with that personal theological opinion. In fact, we assume there's a, there's a diversity of beliefs on that one. We believe it's important, but we believe it's not a absolute center of the bullseye issue. We certainly don't think it's something that we all have to agree on, and we certainly assume that we all aren't going to agree on it. So I hope that's a clarifying statement. Freedom in Christ is not something you claim for yourself, okay? It's something you offer one another. It's something you share. So let's, let, let's pause for an all-play question. When I describe the term freedom in Christ, what comments, thoughts, or questions do you have? When I just describe that term, freedom in Christ, something you offer one another, knowing that you may be wrong, knowing that um, we're not going to let our disagreement divide us, knowing that we're going to unite in something bigger. Uh, freedom in Christ, Nate says, is not something you claim for yourself, but you offer to others. Yeah, I think that's the big clarification. It's not something you demand. It's something you give away. I love that. Any other thoughts? questions or clarifications. This is an important one when it comes to theological disagreements in the church and personal opinions and beliefs. Bob, I'm only, I'm only able to carry what my heart has learned. This does not make me right for anyone other than me. And it's only my current level of learning the great mystery. I love that. That seems like a humble way to carry a conviction. And you can have a conviction. Remember, the posture is what don't I know? What can't I see? And how can I learn to know and see more? Um, sometimes, Mark says, that is the phrase of dismissal of the debate. Oh, freedom in Christ. Okay. Yeah, I see that, right? Like sometimes it can mean, hey, this debate isn't even worth having. And I think actually, as is evidenced by this passage, that we assume that there's going to be some healthy debate within the church. I think we can have the debate because there's freedom in Christ. But I understand sometimes that just kind of, it just kind of throws the debate out. Um, Andrew, this might be a big question, but how do you listen 
without validating. Yeah, I heard Brian McLaren say this one time to that. When you don't agree, but you don't want to shut them down, you can say something like, huh, you know, I don't see it that way. Now, does that invite further conversation? I don't know. But it's better than going back and forth in a way, um, well, it's better than faking validation, I think. Um, there's much more to say about that. Peyton, I feel a lot of baggage from past ways of thinking in past circles where it was often used as a way to say, when you believe what I believe, you're free. Yeah, which is exactly the opposite of what freedom in Christ really means, right? <laughs> but I get it. There's baggage in that term, big time. Um, Ron, are there any limits to freedom in Christ? Any non-negotiables? That's such a great question. And I think when we, when, when there is agreement um, that from a biblical perspective, um, like, ugh, it's, a, it's such a bigger conversation that I wish we had more time for. But I'm going to say it's a really great question. I think there are some non-negotiables. I think they center around Jesus. I really do. Um, and yes, Danny Cook, this is center set theology. Uh, Bob, and I'll explain that in a second. My beliefs are not meant to disenfranchise your beliefs. Yes. Mitch, freedom in Christ in my past always felt like a way to control behavior. Wow. Yeah. I think it meant a totally different thing um, in the past. Like it meant um, identity in Christ, no matter what, to a way that you would suppress your desires and be fake about your sin, maybe. Um, Nate, it seems that I need to learn how to accept what others believe without necessarily approving of it. I think so. I think that's one oh, like 201, 301 level skills. But if we're going to be able to have firm convictions, as well as offer one another freedom um, to disagree, we're going to need to learn how to talk without um, threatening each other or being threatening. So, um, let me get to what Paul says, and then we got to wrap it up. Paul says, food will not bring us close to God. Debatable, but I get what he's saying. In this instance, food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do eat it and no better off if we do. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But take care that this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if a food is causing of their falling, I will never eat meat, Paul says, so that I may not cause one of them to fall. So that's, that's a posture of saying, like, I'm not going to let my freedom um, ruin the conscience of someone else. I don't love the word weak. I think he kind of means those that um, aren't as like, haven't been a Christ follower very long. I think in our, in our setting, we might swap the word weak with the phrase, those in the minority. And I, I will not let my freedom, even though I hold it, um, squash the viewpoint or make someone hide or silence the viewpoint of someone in our community who thinks differently. I will not use my freedom as a megaphone that silences someone else's minority view. So again, you can hold your convictions in such a way that you can offer freedom to people, to, to the person in this community that doesn't share your views, 
knowing that we don't unite around this belief or that belief. Um, Danny brought up centered set theology. And so that's just the view that we, we unite around the center, which is the person and life and work and death and resurrection of Jesus. That's the center. Think of it as like a well in the center that you return to versus seeing our beliefs as boundary markers or a fence that keeps us in and keeps others out. So that's centered set versus bounded set theology. Super important. You guys, I'm going to wrap this up, but later on in the, in first Corinthians, Paul writes the, the beautiful wedding verses, you know, <laughs> if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I gave away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that ver those verses were not meant for weddings in the first. <laughs> they're great in weddings. I love them. But they're meant to guide a community of diverse people that are trying to follow Christ, knowing that you're going to disagree on many things. But love is the foundational guidepost that removes rampant individualism and installs a kind of loving um, boundary marker that says, uh, if I'm right, but I'm rude and I don't have love, then I'm no better than just a noisemaker. Have convictions have them strongly, but without the posture of love, being right means nothing at all. Amen. So much more to say about this, but our time is over. <laughs> We're going to continue this conversation in our learning lab, which starts on February 9th called Learning to See Inclusion and Confirmation Bias. So please plan on joining us for that. And yes, we will record that. Uh, those conversations uh, for anyone who can't make it. Endings are a place where life is Thank you for listening to the Genesis West podcast. If, if you, you find, find yourself, yourself nearby, nearby on Sunday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. We meet at Elam Church Center in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. If you, if have, you have any, any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit us at www.genesiscov.org.